Praise God. Praise God. God is doing a work, amen. We can see it um, all amongst um, all of us here. We can see that God is touching hearts. God is changing lives. God is transforming lives, amen. Um, He's transforming us, not just people out there, but there's a transformation in us. God's doing, amen. Well, I'll just... uh, Open with a word of prayer. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this evening. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity to minister your word to your people. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would fall on good ground in their hearts. Lord Jesus, that it would bear forth fruit, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would touch our minds, Lord Jesus, that we may be hearers and doers of your word. I pray this in your holy name, in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to thank Pastor for the opportunity to minister again. Um, some of you probably would have guessed what my, I'm going to be talking about. Um, but if you want to turn to Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31, we'll read that uh, scripture together. Now this is... Um, Lazarus and the rich man, starting at verse uh, 19. There was a certain rich man that was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, and being in torments, he seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus receives Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he say, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto him from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. Through one rose from the, though one rose from the dead, <clears throat> and I thought about this story in relation to our mission. And does anyone know what the mission of NPC Church is? <laughs> um, that's right. The title of tonight's uh, message is in line with that. Our mission. Um, the message is from the gate to the table. From the gate to the table. So let's look closely at this story. There was a certain rich man. 
He was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. Straight away, you see Jesus, there's these two contrasting characters, Lazarus and the rich man. Both are living very different lives. You have the rich man that lives in abundance. He has sumptuous daily food. He has fine clothing. And from that you could say perhaps he has a career or a business that he runs. He's in good health. So this rich man is self-sufficient. And then we have Lazarus. Lazarus is in lack. He is a beggar. He relied completely on others. He had no food. He was continually hungry. He had sores. The dogs licked his sores. We're not given much else about how they got to where they were other than verse 25 which says, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth good things, talking about the rich man, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. So for whatever reason, uh, the rich man received good things in his life and Lazarus evil things. Perhaps Lazarus was well off at some stage. Perhaps he was and then he got sick and then he lost everything. Perhaps the rich man worked really hard in his life and ran his father's business. Or maybe he got a a large inheritance. we're, We're not sure, we're not given the background of how one was... One fared and got to this position um, that Jesus was talking about. We're not sure, but in any case, we find that death comes to both men, as it will come to all of us. And Jesus does not even mention that Lazarus is buried, but he specifically mentions that the rich man was buried. You could imagine that people probably didn't even realize that Lazarus had died. They probably didn't even notice. But the rich man, he got a burial. Perhaps there was this massive funeral. Everybody was invited. There was professional mourners there. But when they opened their eyes, Lazarus was found in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was found in a place of torment. So the question is, how does that apply? How does that apply to you and me today? For a moment... I would like you to place yourself as the rich man. I'm not going to I'm not saying you're going to hell. Just place yourself as the rich man in the story. We, you and me, we are the certain rich man. We're clothed in purple and fine linen. We eat every day. We live in abundance. We have been richly blessed in this life. Physically we are. Spiritually we're saved. We have the word of God. We've received his Holy Spirit. We're baptized. We're washed clean. We have a new life. Financially, we are blessed. We have clothes. None of you are naked here. (laughs) We have a roof over our head. We've got health, breath in our lungs. If we're sick, we go to the doctors. I could go on and on and on and on and on. We don't see ourselves as the rich man. But when you start to realize how rich we truly are and how God has blessed us with the good things in this life, Do we have struggles? Yes, of course. Do we have sicknesses and pains? Hurts? Yes, of course. But we have received the good things, not because we deserve it, but it's just his grace. 
It's unmerited favor that, that God has given us the life that we have. And then there is a certain beggar. There is a Lazarus in your life who has been laid at your gate. So I want you to point yourself and say, my gate. Now, this is not pastor's gate. It's not Brother Gavin's gate. It's not Brother Jonathan's gate. It's not my gate. This is your gate. Lazarus is laid at your gate. And if you take note, the scripture says, um, Lazarus was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate. So it wasn't, God's not calling us to the middle of sub-Saharan Africa to go and reach the lost. There is a Lazarus at our gate. So think for a moment, is who is that beggar? Who is that man? Who is that woman, that child, that work colleague, that friend, family member? Who could that be? That beggar that does not know Jesus. That beggar that may be struggling with hunger. That's struggling financially, perhaps emotionally, in their marriage, or with grief, are struggling with addictions or anxiety, sickness, that is lost in sin and pain. A beggar who, like Lazarus, only has the dogs to help ease the pain and suffering. So the question now is, with Lazarus at our gate, what do we do? What do we do? And that made me think, it was, what was so bad about this rich man? Like, what did he do? That... Did he go out, did he go to hell because he hurt Lazarus? Did he go to hell because he had committed adultery or he stole or he cursed God? He didn't keep the Sabbath. He had idols. He didn't follow the dietary laws. You know, what was the crime that this rich man committed that warranted the harshest of penalties? An eternity with, without God. And I submit to you, the rich man simply never invited Lazarus from his gate to the table. You read the story in verse 19. The rich man fared sumptuously every day. Lazarus, which was at his gate, and then verse 21, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. We're not given the details of the rich man's life. For all we know, he went to the temple, he kept the Sabbath, he paved his tithes, he did the religious things that Jews should do. So what's the deal? He never followed the greatest commandment. And what is that? Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40 says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. To love your neighbor as yourself. That was the law the rich man had broke. Love. The whole law and the whole prophets hang on these commandments. Love. I'm not talking about this emotional feeling. True love that gives. The love that Jesus explained in John 15, 12 to 13 says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. We ought to lay our life down for others. See, the, the, the rich man, he just ignored Lazarus. 
the rich man just had no regard for him. He was apathetic towards him. He, he just didn't care about Lazarus. He was given the good things in life and Lazarus the evil. But he never gave his good to overcome that evil. The rich man could see the lack. And Lazarus, he just desired the crumbs. The Bible says the crumbs. He wasn't asking for Wagyu steak and lobster and caviar. and He just wanted the crumbs. This was a beggar that was hungry for bread. He had nothing. And the rich man would pass by every day. He would open his gate. He would go to his work. He would come back, pass by every day. Notice the location. It was the gate. Every day. How many opportunities did he have? How many times did he go in and out, in and out? How many people did he invite over to his house? Come over for dinner. All those people walked past the, the beggar. See, the gate is the entrance to our house. We were discussing um, about this in Disciple Makers this week, actually, about how our Western society is, is so closed. And my father-in-law um, he was with us for that session, and he made a really good ob- observation. Um, he said back in his day, um, he was saying that uh, one of the things that changed um, our suburbs or the neighborhoods that we live in was air conditioning. And I was like, how is that? And he, he made the point. He said, well, what used to happen is it was in the summers it was so hot, and you wouldn't live inside your house because it's so hot. So people actually used to go out into their porches and their verandas and and what that would mean is that, you know, people would be going for a walk and you'd see them out in the verandas and people would just be talking and there would be, be this community. There would be, um, you know, this conversation. And I think Vanessa and Joy were talking about in, in Africa. It's very similar. And, and so a simple invention like air conditioning has just meant, why would you go outside? <laughs> Just turn on the air conditioner. So we just we close our doors, we go inside, go inside, and um, it's it's a. I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a wrong thing. I'm just saying don't throw out your air conditioners. Um, I'm just saying it's it's a, it's just an observation that um, it's our the world we live in today. We're, we're so busy, we're so busy in our own lives, our closed homes in our own world, with our families and our jobs, and we just pass Lazarus by every single day. And we keep him just at a distance at our gate. We don't want to get involved with Lazarus's problems, with his sicknesses, with his issues, with his addictions, with his poverty, like he probably deserved it. He shouldn't have done those things, or whatever the, the case is, we just don't want to get involved. And... We're okay just to say hi and bye, but there's no investment. And I'm talking to myself. I'm not just talking to, to you all. There, there's, there's just no investment of our time, our talent, our money, our food, our prayer, sharing God's word. We just simply don't invite Lazarus in to the table. And that was convicting to me, the significance of the table. Um, I love the table at my mum and dad's house. Um, growing up, and even today, we sit around the table 
We talk, discuss, <clears throat> we laugh, we share, we, we joke, we eat, we pray. You know, we make lots of memories there. I remember having many people come over. Um, and many of you have probably come over as well. Um, you know, many people that we liked, many people that we didn't like. <laughs> Friends, family, church, young, old. Um, the house was always open. So many times we'd have random people staying with us. And um, I'd ask my mum, who is that person? She said, oh, she's your aunties, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, niece. Don't you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and my uncle actually bought a plaque. It's at the front of my mum's house. And it says, all people bring happiness to our home, some by coming, others by going. Um, but, you know, the table has been such an important part of our family and of our life. But it's important to God. The table is important to God, spiritually and practically. It's where we share the word of God, where we break bread of life. Um, we literally break bread when, we, when, we, when we're at the table. We experience hospitality and love when sharing food. Um, there's a sharing and there's uh, a life together. Uh, in his book, The Patient Ferment, Ferment of the Early Church, Alan Crezia wrote about the rise of the early church from the death of Christ, so after Jesus died, to about 300 AD. And it's interesting what he observed was the primary symbol of the early church. He said it should not be a cross, but it should have been a table. So meals, they were important to Jesus. You read throughout the, um, the Gospels, Jesus is always having meals. He's having meals with sinners, tax collectors, rich, poor, disciples, 5,000, 3, 12, men, women, children. Like, he's always eating. Like, he's... <laughs> um, yeah, they did. They called him cotton. You know, there, there's this... That's, Jesus was interacting. He was, he was in people's lives. He was in their house. And... The table that you can see that flowed from Jesus to his disciples, and that flowed from into the early church. We read when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, 42 to uh, 46 and 47, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And even throughout the, the book of Acts, you can see that they went from house to house. They ate meals. Um, they had their meat with gladness. There was, there was this community that we all love. Who here loves food? The only person might be my mum that wouldn't put her hand up. But everyone loves food, you know. My wife tells me that um, my daughter, Adelaide, her love language is food. And, you know, the table is a place of food. It's a, it's a place of intimacy, a uh, place of sacrifice, a place of community, of thanksgiving, a place of discussion, sharing. We learn about each other, of questions, of fellowship, of hospitality. It's a place of relationship. And I'm going to attempt to explain something to you. Excuse me if I don't explain it the best. But I found this really interesting. If we can get that next slide up. Um, 
I'm not that good with Greek and Hebrew, but um, I was doing a little bit of study and table in the Hebrew is shukan. Does anyone know Hebrew? Um, So try to follow me. And then um, what makes a shulkan even more interesting is that the verbal root is shalaka. Um, This is a common Hebrew word that means to send forth. The word shalaka is translated into the New Testament Greek as aposteli, um, from which we get the English word apostle. So as defined in the Bible, an apostle is one that is sent forth for a purpose. Um, So biblical scholars have said that the function of an apostle, based on the background of this word, so the the root word, um, the meaning of the word, is to prepare a table or to provide a proper setting of food for those who are hungry. The apostle's ultimate responsibility is to provide the only true food that God has given to all mankind, the word of God. Now, that just blew my mind. I'm not saying that we have an Apostle Simon here and an Apostle Jonathan and an Apostle Joy. You know, we're not saying, we don't want titles of, hey, I'm the Apostle Rowan and you need to listen to, no. That's not what I'm talking about. But you and I, we are here, we are called to be sent. An Apostle that is sent. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I send. Behold, I send. That's apostle, you forth as sheep into the midst of wolves. Be therefore as wise as serpent and harmless as doves. Romans ten fifteen says, And how shall they preach except they be sent, apostle, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We are sent to proclaim the good news. And I just find it amazing that the root meaning of the word apostle is is table. We're sharing both physical food but spiritual food with others. We're, we're called to send it out, to prepare tables. So who do we share our table with? And what do we share at our table? We turn this world upside down one soul at a time. Only when we refuse to ignore the Lazarus in our life and invite him in to our table. It takes time. It takes time to build relationships. Brother David, it's been 10 years. <laughs> and it costs you, but it's worth it. Genuine, intentional. See, Brother David had an intent. He said, I've got to do this. There's something within me. It's been 10 years. I need to do something. Genuine, intentional, relational discipleship is the most effective way of reaching the lost. So to prove this, I want you to answer some questions. If you've got your phone or a piece of paper, I want you to write down. um, First question is, name five preaching messages that impacted your life. some music you might not be able to get all five but um, name f- 
five, the next question is name five spiritual experiences that impacted your life. And the last one, <laughs> if you don't get all five, that's okay. Um, name five uh, people that impacted your life. Five people. So should I get a volunteer? Or no? no, it's okay. You can... <clears throat> So we're talking about genuine, intentional, relation, relational discipleship in reaching the lost. And I just did this short little exercise because I want you to, to compare um, what was the easiest to write down? What did you find the easiest? I general people, people, yeah. I, I find, can I get a show of hands? Did you, did you find, if you had people, could you put, yeah? Experiences? And uh, preaching? Oh man, why am I up here? <laughs> um, so people, uh, generally, generally, um, it's easier to remember um, people. Um, it's not to diminish uh, preaching. It's not to diminish the, our experiences because they all play a part in discipling us. But I wanted to demonstrate that it, we're here because someone discipled us. Somebody in your life took the time to build a relationship with you to share truth with you. They took the time to share a table with you. We are relational beings. It's the way that God created us. Right from the beginning, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. We need relationship. We need each other. We can't get through this life without each other. And relationship is priority when we're trying to reach Lazarus. It's not enough just to bring Lazarus to church or to give Lazarus a Bible. The example I was, gave in our first lesson, Disciple Makers, was we are a tour guide. We are not a travel agent. See, a travel agent, you go to a travel agent and you um, just book their stuff. You say, yep, the flight's at this time. You can arrive at this airport and you can go on this tour. If you want to go whitewater rafting, sure, we'll book you in there and you can go and do this and... But you book it and that's it. Take the money and go. Whereas a tour guide, you go with them. So you book a tour guide. The travel agent might book the whitewater rafting, but the tour guide is the one in the boat with you. The tour guide is the one that, that shows you, wow, you should really hold on because we're going to go down these rapids. <laughs> the tour guide is, say, is the one that says, okay, paddle left, paddle right, slow down speed up, follow them, don't go there. 
they experience falling in the water. They experience all the things that happen on the tour. You're doing it with the person. They experience the table, if I can put it that way. You know, it's kind of like you just call up Uber Eats and say, yeah, Lazarus is at the gate. Can you just give him some food? Like, I don't want to get involved with him. Um, there's a difference between the Uber Eats approach and the approach where we invite Lazarus into the house. Discipleship, it's primarily about imitation. It's not just information. And I was recently talking with Pastor, and he has a real passion. He has a real desire for the application of God's word in our life. Not just the teaching of doctrine, and, um, but it's, it's about you and I being the living word. A living epistle that is read of all men. We need the living word applied in our life being read by others and for them to apply God's word in their life. This is how the early church multiplied. See, the early church, they didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't written. They were the living epistles. People read Jesus all over them. And they followed because they saw Jesus. And that's who we are. We're not Jesus, but we're an imitation of him. We're following him. Follow me as I follow Christ. Be the tour guide, helping others. Um, the, the book that we've been reading, Disciple to Lead, sorry, I'm just taking a lot of this stuff from the disciple makers, um, but it's just it's been a real burden on my heart. And there's this, the chapter that we read this week, um, I just have to quote it um, word for word. Uh, Stan Gleason wrote this book and he said, if we can get, get that um, next slide up. So I thought it was a, a funny, I was trying to find a, a godly image of someone like, like that, so I think that one's okay. Pastor will tell me if it's not after. Um, <laughs> so he, Stan Gleason says, a lack of true discipleship produces followers who are out of balance and unhealthy. This would be somewhat like a bodybuilder who only works out the right side of the body. How strange it would be to see a 21-inch bicep on one side of the body and an 8-inch bicep on the other. To follow the analogy even further, someone asked a weightlifter what he did with all those muscles. He immediately went into a typical weightlifter pose and flexed. The person asked the question was exasperated and tried again. No, I mean, what do you do with all those muscles? The weightlifter smiled and went into another pose and flexed again. That's about right. We pose and flex our Pentecostal power to worship and preach on Sunday, but do nothing to make disciples Monday through to Saturday. And that one sort of, that really hit me because we come to this table here on a Sunday to feast we grow, we get direction, we're strengthened, we hear the word of God for our life, the precious word of God. We receive bread from heaven. But what about the other days of the week? Do we share our table with others? Do we share our table with our family, our children, 
our husband, our wife? Do we take it outside these four walls? This is what makes a difference. When we don't just hear his word, but we do them. We're not here to follow a religion, but we want to see lives transformed. We want to live transformed life. I don't want to be the same person I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We want our minds, our hearts, our lives to be transformed by Jesus. He lives in us. And if he lives in us, something must change. It's He must increase. I must decrease. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. This is the wise and the foolish man. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. It's not enough just to listen to God's word. But it's in the action. It's in the application of God's word to our life. That is the wise thing. That is how you're building your house upon the rock. When we just listen and we don't do anything. So when we leave this place, do we invite someone to the table? Or do we just forget about that word? So it's the obedience of the Great Commission to go and make disciples. We don't need to make the same mistake as the rich man. And I was thinking about this earlier, actually. Um, the rich man, when he, uh, he, when he was in the place of torment, he said, um, I've got five brothers. Send someone to help them. So, but it was too late then. It was, nothing could be done by him. He had his opportunity when he was alive. And so we, Northside Pentecostal Church, you have breath in your lungs now. And this is your opportunity to reach out to Lazarus. And I thought about the power of that is if you take this opportunity to reach out to Lazarus, imagine the change in your brother's lives. Those five brothers. So it, wasn't, it wouldn't have just been the rich man that made it to heaven when, when, they, when he died. There were five others that could have seen that example. There were five others that the rich man could have seen. Look, what I'm, look at Lazarus. We, we don't have to go to the place of torment. Let's reach out to the other Lazaruses. Let's reach out to the other beggars. Let's love those around us. And that's the power of the multiplication. It's not just the one. It's not just you that goes to heaven. Because we're not doing this so that I go to heaven. That's not the only reason. We're not selfish like that. It's because it's out of love. 
It's out of love because we love them. Because we don't want them to be in that place of torment. We don't want them to be in that place of darkness. We want them to spend eternity with Jesus. And we want our brothers, our five brothers, to spend eternity with Jesus too. You have breath in your lungs. And there is a Lazarus in your life that God has called you to reach. If we'd like to stand at this time, perhaps you don't know where to start because you're like, wow, I don't know what I can do. There is a Lazarus at your gate. I'll tell you where you can start. You can take Lazarus to your table. And I challenge you this week, if we can have that last slide up, to invite Lazarus. Don't close your home, don't close your table to just the people that you know. I believe God has called us to be sent. God has called us to prepare a table. You may not be a good cook. Uh, If I'm going to invite Lazarus, I'll ask my wife to, to do the cooking. But God has placed a call in your life to reach Lazarus.